If you pay a closer attention, look at what's happening around the world today. Of course, on one hand, we're still questioning or we're still interested in knowing regarding the war in Ukraine. But meanwhile, and how about another country on the planet, which is Haiti? Now, regarding Haiti, this country is undergoing this tremendous political and also this economic struggles. And the question we should ask is, what is going to happen to the country in the long run? And how about this international intervention? And how many people are questioning the methodologies or even the effectiveness of international intervention? So that's why today in this episode, we're going to talk about the current political and also this economic crisis in Haiti. And meanwhile, we need to discuss how about this, the effectiveness of international support and regarding to solve the crisis. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite Professor John Chochirari. Now, Professor Chochirari is Associate Dean for Research and Policy Engagement at the University of Michigan's Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy. And of course, one of his amazing books that I read is entitled Sovereignty Sharing in the Fragile States. Professor Chochirari, welcome to The Missing Piece. Thank you so much for having me, Will. You're welcome, sir. The pleasure's all mine. Now, as we mentioned before, initially when I discovered you, because this amazing article that you wrote and entitled Intervening in Haiti Again. Now, again, as we mentioned, this country, Haiti, is undergoing this tremendous political and also this economic turmoil. Can you help us to understand what is exactly happening in this country and why it is so concerning to the international community? Unfortunately, Will, Haiti has been in various degrees of crisis for a long time, but the violence it's experiencing now is arguably the most severe since the mid-1980s when uh, its dictatorship fell and, and was replaced ultimately by a fragile democracy. Haiti is facing several interrelated challenges at the moment. One is that in 2017, a long-standing UN peacekeeping operation concluded in Haiti, and the international forces that had been present in the country and had been contributing to its at least partial stability Mm. uh, went away, and gangs and other actors engaged in violent, illicit activity, some of whom have connections to senior state officials, uh, began to assert themselves again to contest territory, uh, to engage in often politically linked violence. A few years later, Haiti faced the pandemic, as we all did, Mm. and was ill-prepared for it. Haiti has very weak state institutions, was not in in a position to be able to secure vaccines or otherwise prepare its population and so it suffered a particularly acute bout with coronavirus. Hmm. Haiti also was caught up in a uh, an economic storm brought on not only by the pandemic and not only by the weakness of its institutions and escalating violence but also by a couple of devastating earthquakes Uh, that rocked this small half-island country Mm. and destroyed a lot of its infrastructure and displaced a lot of its people. And so Haiti was facing escalating violence, facing a severe outbreak of COVID, facing earthquakes, economic decay, 
And on top of that, the government that I described as a fragile democracy had become increasingly autocratic. Mm. And President Jovenel Moïse, in July of 2021, was brazenly assassinated in his residence by a group of armed gunmen. Mm. After Moïse's assassination, uh, there was a transitional government, an unelected government that took shape in Haiti with some international backing in order to tie over the country's politics until the next election. Unfortunately, the political crisis stemming from the assassination only added to the country's sense of instability uh, and insecurity. And uh, gang violence, kidnappings, uh, movement of drugs have all increased in the year since Moise was assassinated. Right now, there's no election in sight. The country's economy continues to reel. And there's been a large exodus of Haitian refugees, some of whom have been turned back and sent home by the United States. Mm. And so Haiti is facing quite a storm of interrelated social, economic, political, and humanitarian challenges. Professor, I think when you mentioned, again, during the previous answer that you shared with us, one thing that we need to address is the legitimacy of the government. As you mentioned before, the previous president was tragically assassinated, but right now there's no election taking place in Haiti. And of course, under the current unelected government officials, this country is in turmoil. Now, can you help us to understand the much greater impact of this legitimacy or illegitimacy of the government? Because when we talk about a country who's undergoing this tremendous political and also this economic crisis, there has to be a sense of hope or there has to be a sense of, how can I say, recognition of the reshape up of the government. But right now, based on your uh, based on what you share with us, this isn't taking place in Haiti. And so help us to understand how illegitimate is the government and why has there anything done about this? Haiti's illegitimacy, uh, the Haitian government's illegitimacy can really best be understood Uh, in historical context. Mm. Haiti is the world's first independent black republic, Mm. but Haitian leaders in the late uh, 18th and early 19th centuries took over from French colonial overlords who were notoriously repressive. And the political economy that Haitian leaders inherited was one based on plantation system, based on slavery and and repression of the ordinary uh, citizens. Mm. And so, Uh, Haiti had a long history in the 19th century and the early 20th century of repressive government and centralization of wealth in the hands of a relatively small number of people. In 1915, a Haitian president was assassinated, and the last time that assassination of this kind happened, Mm -hmm. the United States stepped in, but rather than stepping in briefly and and removing itself, the U.S. stayed for 19 years Mm. and engaged in an occupation of Haiti that was racially charged and uh, imperious. That has left a lasting suspicion among ordinary Haitians of foreign intervention in the country. During the Cold War, Haiti returned to a period of unwanted foreign intervention when the United States and others supported dictatorships in the country because they had strong anti-communist credentials. And so the Duvaliers, so-called Papa Doc and Baby Doc, were both leaders that received significant outside support, not just from the U.S., but also from other Western governments, Mm. uh, because they were seen as a bulwark against 
communist expansion in the Caribbean. Ordinary Haitians looked at that and said, again, we're not choosing our leaders. The outside world is responsible mm, for right. uh, choosing our leaders, a continuation of the colonial legacy, albeit in a different form. In the early 90s, uh, Jean-Bertrand Aristide was elected, and an overwhelming number of Haitians came to the polls to elect this leader who was outspoken in his suspicion of U.S. influence and other foreign influence in the country. Mm. He was ousted in a coup in 1991, just a year after he, he was swept to power in an election. Uh, and again, Haitians wondered, was this coup uh, indigenous in nature or was it supported by outside powers who mm. wanted a ruler who would be more compliant? And so a lot of Haitians believed that the United States was involved in supporting that coup. Somewhat ironically, in 1994, the United States brought Aristide back to power as part of a multinational force that ousted the military leadership that had taken over in the coup and tried to implement the framework for more democratic governance in the country, including the creation of a new police force to replace the discredited and abusive Haitian armed forces. Mm -hmm. That continued for about a decade until, amid further unrest, the United States was instrumental in Aristide's removal from power and his replacement by a new leadership uh, that was buttressed by the UN peacekeeping mission I referenced mm -hmm. earlier. All along the way, Haitians are wondering, again, are we engaged in self-determination or are outsiders calling the shots? For a while, Rene Preval, as prime minister, was able to restore some degree of security to the country but in 2010, uh, the devastating earthquake that many of your listeners will have heard about struck the country, decimated many of the government buildings mm -hmm. and much of the infrastructure in the capital of Port-au-Prince and brought a new round of instability and insecurity in the country. When the dust settled from the earthquake, a new Haitian government took power uh, under the leadership of the pop singer Michel Martelly, who was seen as another U.S.-friendly leader. Mm. Uh, Haitians had elected Martelly, but with a lower turnout to the polls. By 2016, when Jovenel Moïse was elected to replace Martelly, uh, Haitian participation in the election had plummeted so that only a small fraction of Haitians exercised their right to vote, an indication that Haitians didn't think that there was much point in going to the polls because someone else was going to essentially choose the leader mm, for them. That's right. And we continue to the present, and we have now an unelected government that many Haitians believe is both representative of a small elite that continues to wield power in the country mm -hmm. and that many Haitians also believe is able to stay in power because he has the backing of France, Canada, the U.S. and other influential foreign powers. And so my point in narrating this long arc of history is to convey that there's nothing new about the challenge of a deficit in public trust for the Haitian government. Mm. This is a problem that has existed throughout the country's history and that is intimately related not only to the corruption and malfeasance of Haitian elites, but also to the serial intervention of foreign powers. You know, Professor, it's interesting that you mentioned that how the United States of America or any other countries, number one, had good intention to intervene this political crisis when the fragile states are undergoing, again, this crisis. But meanwhile, within your article that you wrote specifically, you mentioned not only the Haitians, but also, again, and put in a greater scale, 
people are tending to resentful towards this international intervention because we know now again going back to what i said before not only the u.s but also other countries Everyone is watching what's happening around the world and everyone is showing compassion and showing sympathy. Of course, that most effectively would love to bring economic or political support to the uh, countries uh, which is undergoing this uh, uh, crisis. But why do you think it's better or correct me if I'm wrong, Professor, why do you think it's better that when it comes to domestic issues, it's better to be solved domestically without actually having intervention or having the support from the outside. So in other words, how necessary or is it really necessary for a country such as US, such as Mexico or any other countries to intervene for another country's economic or political crisis? I think that foreign intervention works when it resonates with the will of the population mm. in a given country, or at least with a majority of, popula of the population and the government elites. Where it tends to fail, or at least to struggle, is when foreign intervention is seen as being inconsistent with mm. the aspirations of the, of the majority domestic constituencies. and. In the case of Haiti, there is, for the historical reasons I mentioned, a, a long legacy of mounting distrust of foreign interventions. It was exacerbated by the UN peacekeeping mission, which introduced uh, cholera to Haiti and then engaged in a cover-up of the uh, release of cholera into a, a, a river that many Haitians use for drinking water. It was also reduced by a series of sexual abuse scandals in which the United Nations didn't appear to be holding its own peacekeepers accountable for abuses. Uh, and it was reduced by the sense that, uh, that the major governments, including France, Canada, and the U.S., were supporting particular leaders and buttressing them to serve their own interests and not necessarily the interests of the Haitian people. In that context, it would be very risky, to say the least, for international actors to reappear on the scene and to communicate in some way that they had a plan for how to, to remedy the political problems in Haiti. Uh, they simply don't have the trust in the eyes of the population to be able to do that credibly. A process that's going to garner public support has to be regarded by the Haitian people as one that originated in Haiti. It's fine once such a plan is identified for international actors to support it and to buttress it. But if it appears to Haitians that international actors are calling the shots again, they're very likely to be distrustful and non-cooperative. And that's a recipe for a failed intervention. Professor, I want to read something that you wrote for this article, and I quote, the Biden administration has rightly been wary of committing U.S. forces, given the U.S. history in Haiti and the danger of mission creep. The last time a Haitian president was assassinated in 1915, U.S. troops intervened to stem up violence and stayed to occupy the country for nearly two decades. Comparing with what's happened in 1915, and of course today we're living in the age of 2022, now, it's interestingly, Professor, you use the word has rightly been wary of committing U.S. Now, we know that today when we look at the domestic political changes and also this foreign relations under Joe Biden, do you think that U.S. today, not only for Haiti, but for any other countries that who is undergoing crisis politically or economically, 
is it time for us to take a step back really focus on or to take care of the domestic chaos instead of uh, um, reaching out too much or instead of putting finger in every single pie when it comes to international crisis because we know that today it might sound selfish to say we need to put our country first as a priority but meanwhile it is the reality that if we can only if, if we cannot take care of our own people how could the international community expect the much greater promises or much greater economic or political support for any other countries what is your take on that You've certainly captured the mood of many Democrats and Republicans in the United States who believe that the energy of the administration should be focused primarily on challenges at home mm. and that to the extent that the United States engages in uh, in missions overseas, that it should be prioritizing major strategic threats to the United States emanating from other major powers. Uh, the idea for the Biden administration of intervening in Haiti is politically unappetizing. After all, Biden has been much criticized for the withdrawal from Afghanistan mm. uh, and has only recently managed to extricate the United States from that quagmire and is no doubt not eager at all to be seen as engaging in another fragile state on the eve of midterm elections. So you absolutely captured the mood inside of the United States. Now, there's a separate question of whether the U.S. should, despite those political wins, consider intervening in cases like Haiti, where there are severe humanitarian challenges. There are millions of innocent Haitian people who face peril because violence is spiking, the economy is plummeting, natural disasters, COVID, and so forth. Um, I believe that the United States should remain prepared to engage in such circumstances, but not when it doesn't have a strong political foundation for intervention. And that political foundation starts with an understanding of what the local population demands and what the local political elite is capable of delivering in terms of a country's political future. And I think right now the United States has been considering a possible intervention without identifying a roadmap for Haiti's political future. And that seems to me uh, a recipe for problems. Professor, again, as we mentioned in the intro, and I am so honored and fortunate to read one of the books that you wrote, which is called Sovereignty Sharing in Fragile States. And of course, I have to admit that after reading that book or the, uh, a large proportion of the book, number one, it was very enlightening. And number two, help me to understand the word sovereignty in the fragile states. Now, let's talk about your book a little bit. Within the book that you kept on using the word peacemaking of course today that when we look at this political shift or this economic challenges across the world in order to build this harmonious or peaceful society it's number one is challenging and number two when we see the countries who are undergoing this political crisis having this peaceful state it's almost the same it's a far to beyond our understanding now my question to you is how possible or how likely it is today that we can 
build a peaceful or harmonious society for some of the fragile states. And I did, I don't just mean the countries of Haiti, but also when we look at the countries in Southeast Asia, we'll look at some of the countries in Africa. Those countries, the citizens or constituents are longing for harmonious uh, um, a unity or harmonious society for so long. But because the pol a political base is so fragile, how likely we can achieve that goal for those states or for those countries? You're right that it's extremely challenging. Uh, I wrote a book about sovereignty sharing. And what I mean by sovereignty here is not the way we typically refer to sovereignty uh, as a shield against unwanted foreign intervention. I'm referring to the sovereign authority that flows from a government's recognition as sovereign, to so the domestic authority that flows from recognition as sovereign. Uh, what powers does a government have inside of its territory with respect to its people by virtue of being sovereign? And that authority can be shared. Mm. For example, a government can say, we're not able right now to handle uh, vaccinations and so we're going to hand that over to the world health organization or we're not able to handle policing in this area of the country we're going to invite the united nations to send police or peacekeepers we can't handle trying war crime suspects because it's too politically sensitive so we will uh, uh, invite un appointees to come participate in a in a tribunal mm. those are examples of shared sovereignty and the question you're asking is a good one could those type of ventures reasonably be expected to contribute to peace building and to sustainable peace in a country and in general the answer has been that they are certainly not on their own sufficient mm. uh, but in some cases they're able to contribute in meaningful ways when certain conditions exist Number one, they have to be regarded as legitimate by the, the, the presence or involvement of external actors has to be regarded as legitimate by the host state society. And there are a few ways of legitimating. Elite consent or government consent is one way. Mm. Good intentions might be another way. And oftentimes these interventions do have the best of intentions. Uh, but I argue that the most important way that international actors gain legitimacy is through performance. Mm. They have to demonstrate to a skeptical public that their involvement leads to better services, better governance than the host state was doing prior to the intervention. If external actors are not able to demonstrate that, they'll almost certainly not have legitimacy. There's nothing about being an outsider who's unelected in a country that's not my own that would give me legitimacy for a sustained time, unless I can demonstrate to the people that I'm providing better services. So then the question arises, well, what is it that makes these missions effective in helping to deliver the kinds of services that contribute to peace building? Mm. One factor is whether or not the preferences align with those of uh, the local elites, whether the government is actually willing to cooperate mm. with the uh, with the external interveners toward common aims. And a separate factor is whether their, their shared aims align with those of the general population. Mm. The government and the international actors might have shared interests, but those might not be what the people want. And so you need both of those components in order to have a favorable political foundation for uh, for international intervention. When one does have that positive foundation, it's possible to imagine a successful 
peacekeeping mission or a successful inoculation campaign or a successful uh, tribunal. And although those interventions may not themselves contribute in the aggregate to sustained peace, mm -hmm. they help and they can help to develop uh, comp uh, confidence in the government uh, and hopefully added public compliance with the law, cooperation with the authorities, and one hopes that one gets a virtuous cycle of legitimacy and effectiveness. Professor, I know you're very busy. I got two more questions before letting you go. Now, let's talk about the word democracy. As we mentioned before, or something that you shared going back to uh, the initial conversation, because this undergo uh, ongoing political and also social or economic instability in Haiti, we've seen protests and riots were taking place. Of course, that if we take a step back today, because the fragile states and because the fragility of those states, people, especially the younger generations, are more likely to voice their oppositions through protests and through riots. Of course, that really tie into the concept of freedom. So my question to next question to you, Professor, is how significant or how important it is that when we have the freedom, well, when we have the opportunity for the constituents to voice their oppositions, to hold rallies or protest towards the unfair or unofficial or unelected government today. Because we know some countries are suppressing heavily on those political rhetoric or on this political freedom, so to speak. So help us to understand, I know this is something that you also mentioned in the book as well, since the states are fragile, since the states are in, in the deep crisis, how should we understand the importance or the significance of the freedom of speech and freedom of opposition? In a fragile state, there is a, a race in time uh, between the point when a government tries to democratize and the point when the people get fed up with its failure to deliver services, there is a window of time in which the people will tolerate a government uh, that has democratic credentials and allow it to see if it is able to deliver better services than the repressive government that came before it. Uh, in most countries, including Haiti, that move toward democratic elections. In the first few elections, lots of people come out and vote because they believe, they hope, that their voice through these legal channels will effectuate positive change, mm -hmm. that it will deliver leadership that will be uh, providing the services that they want. If time goes on and a government is not delivering those services, the danger is that the people lose hope and trust in the process. Mm -hmm. And they stop thinking that their vote at the ballot box will deliver the kind of governance they want. When people lose that hope and trust in the formal systems, they get out and they start protesting, and then they eventually turn violent. And when it turns to a state where people are no longer believing that they can use lawful means to push their agenda and instead need to resort to violence to very, very dangerous situation. And sadly, we're, we're at that moment in Haiti where more and more people have effectively, at least for the time being, have, have lost confidence in the democratic process uh, and appear to believe that they need to use more radical measures to bring about political change. 
Professor, I want to wrap up our conversation again, going back to the article that you wrote. And I quote again, this is something that you wrote in the article. And you said the United States and its partners should use the prospect of security assistance to push the Haitian government to engage earnestly with opposition groups and civil society leaders on the transitional framework and path to elections. Now, the last question, how likely we're going to see another legal or official election take place in Haiti. So in other words, the, the country can stay in this way. And of course, it costs lives and also it costs energy. Of course, that it gains attention for international communities. But this is not the solution to the problem. So again, based on what you wrote, the U.S. should use the prospects of security assistance to push the Haitian government to engage with the opposition groups and civil society leaders so that we're going to see a major election take place soon. How likely we're going to see that and how possible we can understand the outcome of the election? It's quite possible that there will be other elections in the near term in Haiti, but it's not automatic. And this is a fundamental dilemma in big powers engagement in fragile states. Uh, if I'm a big power, am I going to reward the leader of a fragile state for loyalty to me? Or am I going to reward that leader for trying to engage various stakeholders to, mm. to chart a more democratic and inclusive political future for the country? In most places, in most times, big powers reward loyalty. Mm -hmm. They want a leader who's going to think the way that they think, who's going to pursue the political agenda that favors their interests. And as a result, the leader gets further and further away from his or her own people and loses legitimacy. People get frustrated. They stop voting. They stop protesting and they fight. Now, it's possible to change that story. It's possible for the United States, the French, the Canadians, the Mexicans and others mm. to decide that they're going to use their tremendous leverage over this fragile and embattled Haitian government to say what we demand is not loyalty. What we demand is inclusive democracy. And if they were to do that, there is some chance that the Haitian leadership would see no alternative but to go and consult broadly within the country on how to formulate a more sustainable political path forward. I believe that would be not only in the interest of Haitian citizens, but it would also be in the interest of the international community in building a more a stable and prosperous state. But again, it requires a decision in Washington, in Ottawa, in Paris, and elsewhere to have what I would consider to be an enlightened foreign policy toward Haiti, to put aside our short-term interests and to think more long-term about what's likely to be conducive to peace building and development in that in that uh, war-stricken country. Well, Professor John Chaturari, it's a professor and associate dean for research and policy engagement at the University of Michigan's Gerald Art Ford School of Public Policy. And of course, he's the author of the book, which is entitled Sovereignty Sharing and the Fragile States. Professor, thank you so much for taking your time to join the show. It's been a pleasure speaking to you, not only regarding Haiti, but also regarding the ongoing international crisis. Again, we'd love to have you back on the show as we come continue to follow and pay attention to progress within the Haitian government. Thank you, Professor, for doing this.